Hi, I'm Jared Fuller, and welcome back to Scratching the Surface. On this episode, I am joined by Charles Summery-Smith. Charles' new book, The Art Museum in Modern Times, is one of those books that felt like it was written just for me, hitting the sweet spot of all of my interests. It's an architectural history of art museums around the world, looking at the role architecture has had in shaping our understanding of both the institutions and the art they house, while also musing on the changing role of museums in society and the position of the museum director. This Venn diagram of interests matches Charles' interests too, I think. Trained as an architectural historian, Charles has spent his career in museums, starting at the Victoria and Albert Museum before becoming the director of both the National Portrait Gallery and the National Gallery, and then serving as the secretary and chief executive of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. In this conversation, Charles and I talk about the process of writing this book and how thinking through these issues changed his own thinking on museums. We talk about the intersection of architecture and museums, how museums and cultural institutions are organized and run, and the role of the museum director. We close talking about a subject listeners will know I've been obsessed with lately, the intersection of scholarship and administration. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content, like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you would like to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thank you as always for all of your support. And here's my conversation with Charles Summary Smith. Your recent book, uh, I guess it came out earlier this year, The Art Museum in Modern Times, is like hits at the sweet spot of all of my interests, it felt like. It was a book about museums. It was a book about architecture. It was a book about architecture history. It was a book about uh, kind of administration and what it means to run a museum. And I, I completely devoured it and loved it. And in preparing for this, I heard you give another interview where you said that your editor wanted you to write a book about what it's like to be a museum director. You wanted to write a book about architectural history. And this book is kind of an uh, amalgamation of both of those ideas or kind of what was produced out of that. Can you talk a little bit about how that idea came about and how you kind of reconciled those two sides to this book? Yes, so to go back to the origins of the book, I had done a book about East London with Harry Pierce of Pentagram, who designed it. And it was originally going to be a small press book. Uh, He had access to a publisher. But then uh, actually my literary agent pointed out that for every copy I would be subsidising every sale. So it was (laughs) published by Thames and Hudson. And the editor at Thames and Hudson Sophie Thompson, who I like very much and very much respect. I had thought I could do another book equivalent to East London, maybe about the city or about Mayfair. And she said, no, 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 she wanted me to do what she described as a real book. And I sort of (laughs) knew what she meant. Um, A a serious book. She knew I was coming up to leaving the Royal Academy and so would have more time. And it suited me. And... Years ago, when I was at the National Portrait Gallery, I had done quite a lot of 
talking and lecturing and writing about museums. And then when I went to the National Gallery, I just didn't have time to keep up with the literature. So that she reactivated this interest in museums. But exactly what you say is correct, that I think she wanted it more to be about the politics of museums. And I have always been very, very interested in the architecture of museums. So that I only know this because she sent me what she had done in order to get editorial approval. She's actually now managing director, so I assume she didn't have too much difficulty, but it was like the treatment. <laughs> and it came under the topic museology. Mm. And actually, if you look at it as museology, I know, and she probably realised, and several people have told me, it's not a book of pure museology because museology tends to be quite technical and it right. tends to be quite critical. Right. Whereas I, I'm not so interested in that form of writing about museums. What I wanted to do is exactly what I've ended up doing. Well, it's not quite true. I'll come back to what I originally was. Well, what I originally did was write a narrative history. I sat mm. down and I started in 1945 because I knew things changed as a result of the war. I did a mm -hmm. chapter about the 1950s, then I did a chapter about the 1960s, which was expansionist, everything you would expect to be. And mm. then when I'd finished that version of the book, uh, I think it was trying to do too many things. It was, it was trying to be a bit autobiographical, giving a sense of what it'd been like working in museums. It was trying to do a certain amount about collections and display and the role of exhibitions. Mm. And at its heart, was what the book ended up being, which was this architectural narrative of how people have thought about and constructed new museums. I had done quite a lot of them because I myself had been involved with several projects. Mm -hmm. And so after the first version of the book, I showed it to various people. And to be honest, none of them were very convinced by it. And I, <laughs> okay. So uh, it would have been in the autumn of 2019 not so i, I just hmm. somebody gave me very good advice which was they said the great thing about a computer is that you can chuck stuff away and it doesn't go forever <laughs> right and he, and he said you can fiddle about with it and so what i did was extract all the new museums and i realized hmm. that made a much more coherent analysis and back back burned to the book I added a few. I mean, by then I'd realized actually lots of things start with the um, Museum of Modern Art. And I'd mm -hmm. left out one or two. And somebody who read it said, you must go to this uh, museum in Hobart, Mona. And when I planned a visit to Mona, I realized the airplane stopped in Abu Dhabi. So I was able to add the Louvre Abu Dhabi. So, so um, that's where it ended up being not a comprehensive narrative of new museums because i'm sure there's some i know some right. myself which i could have included it's a sort of personal narrative of ones which i've liked and admired yeah it's interesting to hear you s describe that kind of editorial process because i think there are pieces of that original manuscript that's you know still feel like they come through and yes it's focused on the specific buildings and it's centered around the museums themselves now but it is 
still personal. I mean, it, it, it very clearly is coming from your relationship to those museums. And I'm kind of curious how you thought about that. This whole conversation won't be about your kind of writing process, I promise. But I'm interested in where you thought about how you brought yourself in. Because you're, you're, you were intimately involved in some of these museums. Others you were a fan of. How did you think about how much of yourself you could put in a book like this? Okay, so justice is not pure museology. <laughs> so equally, it's not pure architectural history. Because mm-hmm. my experience of working on museum projects was I was the client. And mm-hmm. I got deeply interested in what the role of the client is. And the fact is, all museum projects start off with an idea of constructing a museum and what sort of museum it should be before somebody recruits an architect. So mm-hmm. that uh, there's an implied bias in the way I've studied each of the museums, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is to privilege the client position, what the client was trying to do mm-hmm. and achieve, and not do it as pure architectural history. But then your question, how much um, is it about myself and my own experience? Well, the reason I wrote it was that I was leaving the Royal Academy and I wanted mm-hmm. to have time to look at and reflect on what had happened in museums. I knew that there had been gigantic changes, but if I'm honest, and some people say it's a bit stupid of me to say this, but it's the truth. I didn't start out with any sense of what the analysis would be. I knew that there were all sorts of trends and changes and big issues which had been caused change in museums. But I didn't really know what they are, because the trouble is, if you're running a big organization, it tends to be very forlorn. You don't have that much scope for looking around and thinking and reflecting, let alone writing. So that, that the personal element was to give me an opportunity and the time and the space to stand back and look at what had happened during my adult lifetime. But equally, alongside that, as I've said, the first version had a bit more autobiography to it, mm. and I decided to dump that. Um, mm. I, I mean, one day it might come back, but <laughs> I, I, I wanted it. I wanted it to look and read as far as possible as a proper serious, in a way, narrative history. But every so often, particularly in the introduction and in the conclusion, the authorial voice comes in, so that. That's in a way also why it's not conventional museology, because museology assumes a critical author and an academic author, whereas in 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 this book, I am there. I mean, I'm, I'm there <laughs> self-consciously, and and right. and it is about my experience, uh, and I would like to think that gives it a particular inflection, and I hope makes it more readable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what's really interesting about the book is that it is very readable. And I do think that it is is personal in a way without being autobiographical, kind of like you were saying. It's interesting to me. I was going to ask you about this and you started to bring it up that part of part of writing this was you wanted to kind of better understand the evolution. And and I was interested in what surprised you or what you learned in kind of deeply researching both the architecture in the book and the museums and institutions themselves now kind of being able to look back at that span of history 
what what surprised you in kind of putting that together? The thing which came out, which I hadn't anticipated, and which people say should have been obvious, and I should have known about it before I wrote it, but I, I, I half knew it. But I felt that the overall narrative was clearer than I'd expected in this hmm. move from museums being about teaching people about hmm. the history of art to being much more about people experiencing works of art on their own, not being encouraged to be taught within mm -hmm. the context of a museum. And I mean, I was very aware, not surprisingly, during the 90s, where the creation of Tate Modern and the abolition, well, uh, uh, Tate Britain first, when Tate Britain split, split from Tate Modern, they decided to have changing displays. They've gone back to a conventional narrative now. But it was a moment where there was a huge amount of discussion. And what became clear during the book, which again, I half knew, that there was a sort of space race across the Atlantic because mm -hmm. Glenn Lowry was doing a version of the same thing at the Museum of Modern Art, of right. kind of rethinking what is a contemporary art museum and how should it be displayed? What are the issues? How do you, how do you make the role of the artist more central? And the, mm -hmm. putting the role of the artist more central tended to mean taking out the didactic voice of the curator. And that was quite fought over in the 90s. But mm. as I say, even though I was aware of it as a discussion, I, 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 when I came to write it, I mean, the Tate Modern, uh, they're scarcely chapters, but the section mm -hmm. is the one I went back to the archive in order to make sure that what I was saying was correct. So I guess for some some context, and we can maybe use this to talk about your work generally, but you studied art history originally with a focus on architecture and design, 19th century architecture and design. And so you had that kind of historical background. And then you worked in museums as a museum director, as an administrator. And I'm I'm wondering how in working on this book and actually thinking about the buildings, thinking about the architecture and, and the design process there and, and, and the architects who were involved, were there times where focusing on the buildings changed how you thought about the institutions themselves? What you say is correct, that I was trained conventionally as an architectural historian. I did a PhD on architectural history. Mm -hmm. And if there had been employment opportunities in the universities in the early 1980s, uh, I, I might have ended up as a conventional orthodox architectural mm. historian. But then, in a way, unusually, I went into postgraduate teaching, but in the V&A. So I was involved in setting up a postgraduate course on the history of design. So that writing the book led me back into the literature of architectural history and ways mm -hmm. of writing about architectural history. I hadn't completely given up on that. Did it get me to think about buildings differently? Yes, it did, because each of the sections, each of the analyses of the buildings, some of them I half knew, but like the story of the Museum of Modern Art, which is quite easy to find out if you have the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a big literature on it, but I wasn't familiar with the literature. So that in each of the museums, 
I tended to go back not to the primary literature because I, it's not that sort of book, but many of them, not all of them, have quite a good secondary literature. It tends to be a bit over celebratory. And one of the problems I discovered quite quickly is that A, lots of museum books are published at the time the museum opens, like the mm. Getty. It mm. opened in 1997 and their books about the building and how wonderful it is and the curators write about the first displays. And then the whole thing goes dead as if there isn't a continuing history. And it tends to be, for my taste, a bit too celebratory. <laughs> and the second thing I discovered is that museum websites, this is the one thing I've come out of it feeling <laughs> strongly about, museum websites tend to be under the auspices of their PR departments. Mm. And they're all about boosting the museum. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be very unhistorical. Mm. Um, the only museum website which I found really, really helpful is Columba, the Peter Zumthor project mm. in um, mm -hmm. Cologne, where they had done something which you can do relatively easily on a website. They had uploaded all the discussions about what they wanted the museum to be, including lectures, but not only by the director, but by the curators. And oh, wow. so that you could discover relatively straightforwardly all the thinking which had gone into it. And then, you know, you clicked again and there was everything about the competition process, who they had interviewed, the judging process, what the brief was, and then on to the construction history. And, in a way, I say this precisely because it was so incredibly unusual. Yeah. Even somewhere like the Getty, which is, after all, a huge organization with its own research institute. In the end, I was rather reliant on a history which was written by somebody who had left the Getty and, and then decided to write his own version of the history. Well, they probably think, and there's probably a lot of truth to it, that it's a bit inaccurate and it's written from one particular perspective. But the fact is, it's the most freely available history. And that meant that for a lot of the narrative, I was having to find things out. I mean, the, mm. the Guggenheim Museum, I didn't know because, I mean, it's, it's fairly available, but I'd never seen any reference to it that Frank Lloyd Wright was, after all, in the Midwest. And right. the building was being constructed right. in Upper Manhattan. And so Frank Lloyd Wright was corresponding every week in considerable detail about his aspirations for the building. And that correspondence had been published in the complete correspondence of Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's completely amazing. It's wonderful. So that for a lot of the projects, it was very illuminating for me to find out more about them. I want to I want to go back to something that you said earlier. You mentioned that you were at the Victorian Albert Museum and you were you, you helped start the the history of design course there and you eventually at the V&A uh, became the head of research and I read in an interview in preparing for this that you you didn't really enjoy that job as the head of research because it was a, an administrative role. You were, you know, essentially make helping other people do research and I'm it, I was surprised to see that because so much of your career since then has been administrative. And I'm kind of curious about that move from 
kind of scholarship and research and history and teaching into administration. What was that? What was that like? And kind of when did you find that maybe you had a talent f- for that side of the work also? Uh, yes, it's a good question. <laughs> so uh, as I've described, I was in a way a pure academic. I did a mm-hmm. PhD at the Warburg Institute on the architecture of Kelsenhard, and then I got a job by great good fortune helping establish this uh, MA program in the history of design, which was established between the VNA and the Royal College of Art. And I had eight really interesting years, brilliant students helping set up the program, what it should be about, and learning all the time. Mm-hmm. And then the VNA went through a big administrative upheaval and they split the museum into two divisions. One was curatorial, which was almost everybody. And then they set up a thing called the research department and I applied and it was very onerous, partly because it was vigorously contested by the Mm. 200 people who weren't in it. And, um, (laughs) and at that stage, it was very, very controversial. It's become much more orthodox that museums should have a research function and that it will only work effectively if you privilege it and in a way buy people research time. At the time, it was felt that everybody who worked in the museum should be doing research Mm. and that somehow by putting it into a separate department, um, it attacked the opportunity of everybody to be doing research, which indeed was the case. I I think it was Mm -hmm. a way of trying to make sure that people were more productive in research terms. But the fact was that I wasn't actually doing any research. I was just trying to set up systems whereby people could do research. Right. And, and right. it was incredibly political because the VNA at that stage was going through a period of big change. And I was seen, you know, for good reason, as the vehicle of that change. And I was very unpopular as a result. And so I didn't, <laughs> if, I, if I admitted to not having enjoyed it, it's perfectly correct. It was, it was okay. a tough okay. job. And, and then I started looking around for other things I could do. And actually, I was still just at a point where I considered applying for academic jobs. Mm. But then I'd spotted that they were they were recruiting somebody to run the National Portrait Gallery. And I, I, I applied, you know, as a, a way of proving to myself that I might have a chance. And mm. it just happened that there were two internal candidates and half the trustees want one and the other half wanted the other. And <laughs> in, in the end, I was the compromise. Got it. So, so that issue of... Um, you know, what is it to be an administrator in vertical commerce as yeah. opposed to an academic? I mean, yeah. I, I found it very rewarding doing what I did. The jobs I did, like the portrait gallery, was very exciting. I met interesting people. I really liked the curators. I liked what the portrait gallery was and represented. And it was fun. But I suppose a little bit of me likes to think that I was once upon a time an academic and possibly <laughs> naively thinks I can go back into being a version of an academic again. And, and the book yeah. is a way of yeah. doing that. 
Right. That makes sense. I have two kind of unrelated questions. I'll ask you one first, and then I have another question that's kind of about that academic um, administration again. But you joined the Portrait Gallery in 1994. From there, you went to the National Gallery, and then you were, you were at the, the Royal Academy. Over that time, and then you left the, the Royal Academy in 2018, how did the role of the museum director change over that um, you know, I guess 25 years or so. As museums them, themselves changed, as the role of museums changed, how did you see your role changing there as being, uh, you know, somebody at the top of an institution like that? It did change very, very considerably. So when I went to the Portrait Gallery in 94, my predecessor regarded the role as being that of, in a way, the chief top curator. He was incredibly Mm. interested, very knowledgeable about the collection. He remained an expert on the work of Gainsborough, and he spent a lot of time on um, acquisitions, negotiating them, raising money for them. He would have regarded his role as involving relations with the trustees uh, and fundraising. So he would have seen himself as the public representative of the Mm -hmm. institution. But he had a head of administration and he delegated pretty well all aspects of the administration to the head of administration. So he wouldn't really have wanted or expected to be involved, I don't know, in issues of pay or, um, you know, issues to do with staffing, Mm -hmm. organisational issues. Now, when I was at the Portrait Gallery, it began to change. Strangely, when I went to the Portrait Gallery, for example, there was no finance committee. The trustees Mm. met only four times a year. They didn't, we didn't have papers about the finances. The finances were run by the head of finance, who was also the head of administration, who was also the head of HR, and we basically (laughs) ran the place. So so those things which are now everyday work for museum directors, which is running the organization, being answerable for it and how it operates mm-hmm. and being particularly involved in issues of HR management. That was beginning to come in, but only beginning. Then when I went to the National Gallery, um, it, it was more different than I expected, partly because the trustees met every month. I mean, <laughs> if, if your trustees meet once a month, I think it's inevitable that they are much, much more closely involved in all aspects of the way the place operates. And my experience was that, um, I'm sure it's true of any trustee organization, you always have two weeks preparing for a meeting and then two (laughs) weeks doing all the things you've been asked to do. So if a trustee body meets once a month, uh, you know, you spend two weeks preparing and then two weeks, dealing with what's come up and then the next meeting is already upon one so that it it tends to create a different relationship when i went to the royal academy the royal academy is very unusual in that the artists are the governing body so that there are Mm. like 15 or 16 artists it was changing to an extent but it still was program first and finance Mm. second and Mm. What's obviously changed, probably exacerbated by COVID, 
is that now institutions, I think, tend to be organization first and then issues to do with the collection and display and exhibitions is dealt with elsewhere. It's a, it's, mm. it's a shift from program to management. Right. It, it's interesting, too, to hear you say that, especially kind of talking about when you started, d- director was kind of seen as like top curator and then, you know, administration finance was, was delegated because in, in a way we're kind of seeing some of that again. As you were saying that, I was thinking about the Met Museum in in New York and when Max Holline joined as director, they also hired a, a CEO to, and it's kind of the same. It's it's kind of the, the splitting of those again. Yeah, that's true. Well, the Met has always, partly because it's so huge, yeah, had issue as to whether or not you have one director or two directors. And they seem to have tried it every which way. Um, <laughs> so that now, I think I'm right in saying Dan Weiss is like yeah. the president. Yeah. So he's yeah. the supremo. Yeah. And then Max Hollein is the museum director and that he's answerable to Dan. I don't know what they do at trustee meetings because <laughs> Max, Max himself is a big, very experienced, you know, big hitting museum director who's been yeah. a museum yeah. director in San Francisco and Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, those relationships can work. In this country, we had a very successful partnership at the National Theatre where there was an artistic director and then an administrative director, and they they got on very well, Nick Heitner and Nick Stark. They, they were friends, and they remain friends. But in practice, I think it's a very tricky combination because the person who's doing all the administration and finance tends to want to be involved in policy and program. Mm-hmm, and the person mm-hmm. who's doing policy and program expects to be able to call the shots on finance so that Unless there's a very, very good understanding, I'm not convinced it works. Yeah, I mean, and that I, I realize that this is a subject that is interesting to very few people. Uh, I no, being one of them. I think, I think you I, might find it's of great interest to a lot of people in museum, just because it's at the heart of the issue of how you maintain a balance mm-hmm. between, so to speak, program and structure. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure it's a version of what you find in business schools, in organisations. Probably. How, how do you how do you have somebody who a has charisma, and can fab people up mm-hmm. in the sort of belief systems of the organisation, and then on the other hand, you want somebody who you know knows and understands how to run the finance. The reason I'm interested in it, and the reason I was kind of asking you about that, is because earlier in the conversation you said that your new book came in many ways because you hadn't had time (laughs) while you were directing these institutions to continue your own research and scholarship. And I'm, I'm very interested in that intersection of scholarship and administration. And I'm somebody, I'm not in an administrative role. I, because I'm a, I'm a faculty member. And so I'm involved in administration. Um, And I find I'm good at administration and I'm good at scholarship and research, but I am not good at them when I have to do both of them at the same time. One of them always suffers <laughs> and, you know, whichever one I have to focus on, the other one, you know, suffers considerably. And I'm, I'm curious kind of how you thought about that. It sounds like, you know, 
your scholarship and that kind of the the academic side, you let that take a back seat for a while. And some of this, you know, conversation about structure is also speaking to that kind of, you know, allowing the director to continue uh, kind of scholarship and, and kind of curatorial strategy. How do you think about that? Or how did you deal with that um, in your work? So I think when I went to the portrait gallery, I knew I had to devote myself pretty heart and soul to the running of the portrait gallery. Mm. And at that point, my academic work took back seat. What I basically did was I found, and I found it helpful in the institutions I ran, I maintained an interest in their history so that mm. the portrait gallery is very well documented. I wrote a book quite early on about the collection, really just to learn about it. And I, I can remember when I completed the book and I gave a copy to my chairman of trustees and he said, oh, please congratulate everybody involved in the production of this volume. And <laughs> I noticed him and I realized that uh, he thought that it had been you know, put together by a team of people right, and I just right. put my signature to it. But <laughs> actually, actually what I did was come in early every morning and write a couple of entries. And I did it myself precisely because I wanted to learn about it myself and I didn't want other people to do it. And, and then when I went to the National Gallery, actually that could have been a mistake. I was asked by the publications department to write a book about, about the National Gallery and I probably devoted a bit too much time and energy to it. And when I completed it, they said, this is what we wanted. It was a bit too academic. Um, mm. And then when I went to the Royal Academy, likewise, I wrote a book about the very first year the Academy was established. That's because my experience is institutions have a kind of mythology to them. Mm -hmm. And that mythology tends to be very powerful. <laughs> and mm -hmm. to be able to interpret what the mythology, what the, what the origins of the mythology is, and why institutions are constituted the way they are, so that it's a form of organizational history, that, that I remained very interested in it. And, and that I felt was legitimate because it was a way of, of being able to analyze and reflect on the institution's history, which I would like to think. I mean, I found it interesting that when I published a book on the academy, I noticed that I would sometimes hear people quoting from the book <laughs> Um, without acknowledging it. <laughs> and I think that's a way that institutions have a kind of, um, exactly what I described, an institutional mythology about, about what their nature is, what their priorities are, which is embedded in history. It's to do with an institutional culture. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think actually in a way that comes back to the book, because what's interesting about the book is that even though you're writing about the architecture and you're kind of thinking about, about the architecture, it's also about how the architecture is speaking to or not speaking to that mythology and how museum directors or, or curators would kind of help cultivate that or think about that and then how that would be embodied in the, in the building itself. And you were you were involved in building projects at the the different institutions, and I'm I'm wondering how you thought about 
administration and and museum directing how that also is a type of scholarship thinking about the organization thinking about its history thinking about you know how the building did you see that as kind of one in the same there or did did it feel like you were doing something else i think i regarded it as related but separable So that when I went to the portuguese, and this is very evident in the origins of the book, it was when the lottery had just been started this side of the Atlantic. And the lottery offered an amazing opportunity to, inverted commas, modernize the institution. The the portuguese had actually had a recent building project opening up its ground floor for its 20th century collection. But there was something about the mood of the times in 94. The National Lottery was established in 93. People were very aware, and I've described this to an extent in the book, of the fact that Britain had not invested in its cultural institutions mm-hmm. in the 80s, whereas the French had. You know, the mm-hmm. French had done these grand projets, starting with Pompidou and with the um, Louvre. All of mm-hmm. them had been modernized, mm-hmm. whereas most of the institutions in London, particularly actually the V&A, were pretty down at heel. They hadn't had any investment. And so when the lottery was established, I arrived at the Portugal. I can never remember whether it's January or February 1994. And we set up an architectural competition in the next six months. And we had recruited architects, Jeremy Dixon and Edward Jones, by Christmas. And then by, by March, uh, 95, we had a scheme and we raised the money in the space of a couple of years and it opened in 2000. That that was a very unusual moment in history where you could do it that fast mm-hmm. of coming in, coming up with the project, getting the funding and reopening. I'm kind of interested in what you're thinking about now or what's next for for you, you've been, you are a prolific blogger. Uh, it seems like you're publishing all the time. You just finished this book. What's what's next? Do you have any other kind of projects like this? Or what are you, what's kind of top of mind for you now? It's a very good question. <laughs> I, I, I put it to my publisher last week, only because I, I've had six very enjoyable and interesting months since the book was published in March doing a version of what I've been doing this afternoon, talking about it, um, uh, doing things online and to a small extent uh, in person. But I want to start a new project and I haven't quite figured out what I should do so that I have various things. I mean, I had thought, what what I've realised is that if you work in a, a subject area, as I've obviously worked in museums over a long period of time, you accumulate a huge amount of knowledge and awareness of how they operate and what they're like without necessarily intending to. So I had thought that I could do, in a way, a follow-up volume, which would look in more depth about how museums operate, not architecture, Mm -hmm. organisation. But it became clear to me quite quickly that that was not... (laughs) I mean, I, I want to do something which is publishable, and one of the things I really enjoyed about doing the book was, to be honest, working with the designer, working with Harry. Mm-hmm. And I had a lovely uh, managing editor who helped all, all the way through COVID doing the picture research. It was it was a team thing. 
And so I would, in a way, like to work with the same team, but I, I haven't quite figured out what it's going to be. I, well, just you know, just so you know, if you ever do write that book on museum organization, I will be first in line for right. it. But... <laughs> I think it's I, a version of what you said that it's regarded as a slightly specialist topic. And, yes, and she she also said, which has some truth to it. I think she thought it would be like Jaws too. You know, <laughs> if you do a follow up volume, it's never as good as the first one. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that might be true. Actually, how does um you know thinking about thinking about what your next project would be? You do run this blog uh, where you're kind of publishing and updating all the time. How does that kind of filter into your research, or how does that influence these larger projects? I I almost see it when I was reading through it as as a way to kind of test out ideas or start sketching out, you know, kind of what you think about something. It is, it is, it is. So I started the blog in 2014 and I started it as a way of trying to reactivate my Mm. mind (laughs) because, because as has been clear from the way we've been talking, running a big museum is incredibly responsible. Mm -hmm you're responsible for large numbers of people and their welfare. And that takes priority. And you don't have that much time to think yourself. And I find increasingly to speak as yourself rather than Mm. as the representative of the institution you're running. I didn't like the fact that increasingly there was a view that you couldn't have any private views. You were always in public on the rostrum. And I started the blog. I was encouraged to write the blog by an excellent, very nice person I worked with who said it would be good so that people in the organization knew more about what I was Mm. doing. And in fact, it turned out to be exactly the opposite because I developed developed this interest in writing about buildings in our neighborhood in East London. And I realized whenever I wrote about the Royal Academy, the, the head of press or the, the <laughs> comms person or somebody in fundraising would ring up and say, you can't say that. Do you realize that you've just insulted <laughs> right. X, Y, or Z? So, so that in a curious way, it made me develop a, a, a private writing life. Mm. And I've carried on doing that and I take great pleasure in it. And exactly as you say, how does it lead into books? You could say it detracts from them because it takes up quite a bit of intellectual energy. But recently, for example, I've been writing about city planning and what's happening in London. And yes, I'm trying out ideas and I'm engaging. It doesn't have a huge audience. Um, And I don't don't do a lot to promote it, except it now appears on Twitter. And and Twitter's a much bigger medium. And and so probably more people pick up on it. But it's still quite niche. But exactly as you described, it's a way of thinking things through. And and also, I find it very helpful in terms of writing. So that I used to be, in the way I think one's trained to be as an academic, rather careful and cautious in what I wrote and how I wrote. But writing a blog has freed it up. And maybe may I like to think more yeah, for it. Yeah, I see that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's a great way to to wrap this up. So I'm going to ask you the final question that I used to end all of these conversations. I'm interested in what you're reading right now. 
I finally started reading. I, I hope in a way she doesn't hear this. Somebody called Tanya Harrod wrote a book about the crafts mm. in Great Britain in the 20th century. And it's an absolutely enormous book. I mean, it is a big book physically, mm -hmm. and it's a big book intellectually because it covers the history of crafts in Great Britain. And I've always had an interest in the subject area. Uh, my wife either bought or was given a copy, and it sat there on her bookcase. And then uh, that's one of the great things about A, COVID, and B, <laughs> B being semi-retired. <laughs> I don't quite like to think of myself as wholly retired. But it's given me time to read things which I should have read long ago. And I haven't. love it. And so it's giving me it. the utmost pleasure getting into it. I love that. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for doing this. I loved the book. Um, I think the way you you kind of structured it and thought about it, like I said at the beginning, just completely hit all of my interests. And it was so nice to talk to you about it and to talk about, about museums. I hope the, the people who are interested in museum organization... Uh, get something interesting out of this conversation. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. This episode was recorded on September 1st, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.